Hi, and uh, welcome to Cato this afternoon. Thank you all for coming. Hopefully it won't be raining by the time we finish our happy hour after we're done with this. Uh, prior to introducing Steve, I thought I'd tell you something quite remarkable that has just happened, which is that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, put a posting in the Federal Register asking for public comments on three petitions to change uh, their uh, regula regulatory regime for carcinogens and ionizing radiation from the linearity no-dose threshold, which means uh, small doses of a carcinogen or ionizing radiation uh, with zero background are capable of causing cancer at the same amount as the same dose with high uh, background levels, and it's patently wrong. Hundreds of papers have shown that to be wrong. Uh, in favor of the biphasic dose response, which is espoused by a Cato scholar, um, uh, Ed Calabrese. Uh, this is quite remarkable. Can you imagine an individual scientist working as hard as Calabrese has uh, being on the road to changing the entire federal regulatory paradigm? It's quite remarkable. That's all I'll say. Anyway, Steve Malloy is here. Steve was an adjunct scholar here for quite some time. Uh, he has uh, an undergraduate degree in natural science from Johns Hopkins and a uh, master's in health sciences from in biostatistics, also from Hopkins, uh, and an LLM degree from Georgetown Law School. Um, Steve is one of these people who's very broadly trained in science uh, and is also a very good writer. And I, I ran into his writings uh, when I <coughs> began to, to uh, issue public comments on climate change and issues like that. Uh, and I realized, God, this guy's a really terrific writer. He's written a bunch of books for us and things like that. And he's here to talk about uh, the PM 2.5 uh, regulations proposed by the Environmental Protection Agency. I'm sure his talk will be entertaining, charming, uh, and perhaps uh, somewhat witty. Steve? Well, thank you for that uh, introduction, Pat, and thanks to Cato for having me today. Uh, let's just get right into it. We're here to talk about airborne particles and what I call EPA's air farce. Just as background on me, Pat gave you a quick introduction. Uh, I have a background in science and law. Um, I've worked over the last 25 years, 30 years. I've worked for you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission, broker-dealers. I've led and been affiliated with free market think tanks. I've consulted to big companies. Uh, I was a junk science columnist for Fox News for many years, uh, co-founded an activist mutual fund called the Free Enterprise Action Fund, and most recently I was an executive for a large coal company. I've also done these terrific Cato books, Science Without Sense, Silencing Science, this is an Amazon top 100 seller, Junk Science Judo, another Cato book. My most recent book was This Green Hell, How Environmentalists Plan to Control Your Life and What You Can Do to Stop Them, it's also an Amazon top 100 seller. <clears throat> Uh, just since disclosure is all the rage th these days, these are my, this is my disclosure. I'm biased in favor of limited government, individual liberty, free enterprise, facts, and reality. I have earned a living doing all these bad things over the last 25 years. I've been a consultant, a think tanker, an activist, publisher, an author, mutual fund manager, corporate executive. Anyone who appreciates my biases can contribute to what I do. So why are we here? Well, <clears throat> we are here because my biases are under assault. That's why I'm here anyway. The EPA is knowingly using junk science, an Orwellian denial of reality, 
And you can pick one, either a callous disregard of morality or a blatant lie in its endless effort to expand government control over the economy. Specifically, what is EPA doing? Well, EPA has recently issued uh, two regulations that, ha that are, uh, along with cheap natural gas, helping to put, uh, devastate the coal industry, cross-state air pollution rule and the mercury air transport uh, standard. EPA's global warming regulations are also based on what we're going to talk about. And then EPA is endlessly tightening its air quality standards for uh, criteria pollutants under the Clean Air Act, known as uh, uh, ozone and PM. So the key to the regulatory initiatives I, I previously mentioned are airborne particles. Um, we call them, uh, I guess in the trade, PM 2.5. And PM stands for particulate matter. The 2.5 stands for the size of the particles, which is 2.5 millionths of a meter, which is about a 20th the width of a human hair. Uh, they are produced by combustion. So they come out of smokestacks, chimneys, tailpipes, forest fires, and smoking. And to give you an idea, this is a human hair. This is an EPA sketch. Um, so 1 20th of this, that's what PM 2.5 is. It's about the size of it. <clears throat> now, there are three key assumptions that EPA uses when it talks about PM 2.5. First one is that breathing PM 2.5 kills people especially the elderly and the sick. The next one is that any inhalation of PM 2.5 kills, even one molecule. Okay, there's no safe exposure. And then death can occur in the short term or long term. In the short term, EPA says death can occur within hours. So you could breathe one molecule and be dead you know, in a few hours. Long term, um, after decades of inhaling PM 2.5. <clears throat> So in a nutshell, which is where a lot of this belongs, um, EPA essentially views PM 2.5 as the most deadly substance known to man. There's no other substance on this planet that I can think of where any exposure causes death, causes death within hours. This is the beautiful Cato Institute, blue sky. In blue sky, there's about 10 micrograms per cubic meter, 10, 10, 10 micrograms of PM 2.5 in every cubic meter of air. Now, you may remember this. This is uh, from uh, the 1971 movie Dirty Harry. Clint Eastwood is pointing his 44 Magnum at the um, wounded, wounded bank robber who's reaching for a shotgun. He says, uh-uh-uh, I know what you're thinking, punk. Did I fire six shots or only five? And so EPA, I'd like for you to think about EPA and PM 2.5 in sort of the same way, you know, to, to turn this around and put in PM 2.5 language, did you inhale zero micrograms or only one? Because you're only safe if you've inhaled zero micrograms, according to EPA. If you've inhaled one, then you have a risk of death within hours. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating, if you look at EPA scientific assessments, they talk about how from zero, oops, let me get back here. Okay, from zero exposure, this is not working. From zero exposure, um, every 10 microgram increase in PM 2.5 increases death rates by 1.2%. That's from zero. And then EPA also says it has strong evidence that death occurs in the short term, hours and days. And that's their language. If you still don't believe me, <clears throat> this is a clip from a letter or from a commentary in the New England Journal of Medicine written by Jonathan Samet, who is chairman of EPA's Clean Air Scientific Advisory Council. And in this letter, I've uh, highlighted it for you, he says there are no thresholds uh, for ozone, for ex 
for safety for ozone and particulate matter. If you need more, this is a letter from EPA's Gina McCarthy when she was Assistant Administrator for Air and Radiation to Fred Upton, Chairman of Energy and Commerce. And in this letter, she says several times uh, that there is no safe level of exposure to fine particulate pollution. Science shows this. Studies have not observed a safe level. Uh, and it's three times in this one paragraph. It's remarkable. My favorite is, this is uh, Lisa Jackson, uh, former administrator of EPA. She's testifying to a House subcommittee in September 2011. And in a colloquy with Ed Markey, she says, particulate matter causes premature death. It doesn't make you sick. It's directly causal to dying sooner than you should. Now, if you think about this, this is like you know, drawing the chance card in Monopoly, go directly to jail, do not uh, pass go, do not collect $200, uh, go directly to death, do not go through Obamacare, do not collect your subsidies. It's the same sort of thing. Particulate matter just kills you, doesn't make you sick. And then she next made the, the incredibly I jump in the shark statement that if, if we could reduce particulate matter to healthy levels, that would be equivalent to curing cancer. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you know 570,000 people die from cancer every year, uh, and she essentially said that, or I'm sorry, yeah, so 570,000 people uh, are killed by PM every year. That's about 23% of annual deaths. It's it's quite a remarkable statement since, well. You know, she's, she's saying that blue sky breathing, I mean, this is air with 10 micrograms of PM2.5 in it, kills 570,000 people a year. Cigarette smoking, as we all know, uh, kills 440,000 a year. So how can breathing clean air kill more people than smoking? Just something to think about. So how does 2.5 help EPA's agenda? Well, first, saving lives is good public relations. The cross-state air pollution rule and mercury air transport standards, rules aimed at the uh, coal industry, EPA says are going to save up to 34,000 lives per year. The Clean Power Plan, which is in its proposed stage right now, it's going to be finalized later this summer, EPA says will save 6,600 lives per year. Now, in addition to being good, good PR, this short circuits debate about costs and benefits. Because EPA says that every life saved is worth $10 million in monetized economic benefits. Even if you're 99 years old and you die, your life is worth $10 million to EPA. And EPA has calculated uh, that the, the cross-state air pollution and mercury air transport standard rule that has benefits of up to, monetized benefits of up to $380 billion per year. The vast majority of that is from PM 2.5. Now, something else to think about, you know, the coal industry's contribution to GDP is only $225 million. But we're going to get $380 billion from, from uh, shutting down a small part of the coal industry. So why not just shut down the entire coal industry? How much money would the you know, economy uh, get out of that? Clean power plant. Uh, EPA says benefits are up to $93 billion, once again, heavily dependent on the 6,600 lives per year. The best coal industry estimate, cost estimate for the rules is only $50 billion. Well, you know, anybody can see that $93 billion is greater than $50 billion. So there's no industry cost estimate that is ever going to defeat EPA as long as PM 2.5 is involved. And this is probably the granddaddy claim of all. Uh, EPA has claimed that by 2020, the Clean Air Act will be providing $2 trillion, $2 trillion worth of monetized health benefits every year, 85% from PM 2.5. $2 trillion, that's going to be, what, about 10% of GDP. 
So EPA's rules are going to produce about 10% of GDP. This claim just came out Monday. Okay, remember uh, before, clean power plan, clean power plan was 6,600 lives per year. <clears throat> well, EPA has just raised it to 57,000 from its rule. Okay, 57,000. Well, I've been following this for years, and I just, yeah, in July of 2011, when I wrote this article for the Washington Times, I just was really frustrated with EPA, and I, you know, wrote a piece called Show Us the Bodies, EPA. Who are all these people dying? Okay. Um, you know, this, this predates the 570,000 figure that Lisa Jackson came out with. Uh, at this time, EPA was only sort of saying 40, 50,000. So who are, where were all these people? Who are they? Where are the bodies? You know, we know... 30,000 people die in car crashes, we know who they are. Uh, if 30 or 40 or 50,000 people are dying from uh, PM 2.5, we should know who they are too. So EPA tried to show us, the, show me the bodies anyway. Um, let's see, gotta go the right way. Okay, so about a week after uh, my piece was in the Washington Times, there was a, a hearing on the Hill. Dennis Kucinich was, he read my uh, piece and then he asked the EPA deputy administrator who was testified whether I was right. And the EPA administrator said, well, no, these are not fabricated numbers. They're based on peer-reviewed science, both clinical and epidemiological studies. So we're going to look at that now. So EPA <clears throat> claims to have three lines of evidence for 2.5. We've got epidemiology studies, which are studies of uh, human populations exposed to 2.5. They've got toxicology studies, which are studies of uh, you know, animals that have been poisoned, and then they have clinical studies, human testing, to see what happens when you poison people. Now, EPA's 2.5 epidemiology, EPA says they have hundreds, if not thousands of studies that support the notion that PM 2.5 kills. It all report similar statistical correlations between outdoor, outdoor monitors that measure PM 2.5 and increased rates of death. And EPA figures that's pretty persuasive. But if you look at the reality of this, you know, there's not a single study that EPA has where they know how much PM 2.5 any, any study subject has inhaled. Uh, there's never been a determination that anyone has ever died from PM 2.5. Uh, all the studies that EPA points to, they're all weak correlations. I believe it's harvesting statistical noise, and we all know correlations are not causation anyway. <clears throat> EPA ignores ignore studies that show no correlation. In fact, um, if, if you're a professor in, a, you know, in academia, they're going to come after you if you publish a study that says there's no correlation. Uh, Jim Enstrom from, the, from UCLA has been attacked and, in fact, fired from UCLA because he published a study in the mid-2000s uh, showing that there was no association between air in California and death from uh, PM 2.5. Uh, EPA has this corrupt review process. It, EPA pays researchers to do the work, and then they pay the same researchers to review their own work. Now, none of us got to check our own work when we were in school, but EPA gets to check its own work. And if you don't believe any of this, well, in 2012, I was involved in litigation with EPA over 2.5. And in its briefs to the court, EPA admitted Epidemiologic studies do not generally provide evidence of direct causation. So the, epidemi the epidemiology studies are all just statistics. It's not science. It doesn't prove anything. 
Now here, let's talk about the toxicology. Of course, EPA has exposed uh, you know, animals, uh, rats, uh, dogs, at hundreds of levels that humans are exposed to uh, PM 2.5. This is what it looks like. These are mice that have been jammed in you know, some little, uh, where, you know, where's PETA when you need them? And although they expose these animals to these huge levels of PM 2.5, no animal has ever died, not a single one. Now, this is my favorite part, the human testing. Now, this is not just some truck parked, you know, behind some building. This building is the EPA's uh, clinical studies uh, facility at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. This truck uh, is a, a truck with a diesel engine, and the diesel engine is pumping diesel exhaust into this. Now, I don't know what you'd call this. I call it a gas chamber. What, you know, you can see where the particles come in this way. Okay. All right. So you got a diesel truck. This is a. This is a. EPA calls this a clinic. <laughs> okay. You got a diesel truck pumping diesel exhaust, and keep in mind, any PM 2.5 kills, right? Okay, so <clears throat> now who are they putting in the chamber? Well, let's see if I can do this with two hands. Okay, they're looking for adults 35 to 55. Well, at least they're of, you know, at least they can consent. But they're looking for adults with metabolic syndrome. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means if you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, if you're pre-diabetic, then EPA wants you for its experiments, okay? But of course, it's not just men, you know, people, adults 35 to 55, you could be 75, okay? That's even past life expectancy. And EPA is gonna put you in its gas chamber and pump diesel exhaust at you. And if that's not enough, you could be an older adult with asthma and EPA is gonna put you in its gas chamber. You could be 65 with mild asthma and they're gonna put you in that gas chamber and pump diesel exhaust in Now, keep in mind that, remember EPA, remember the Dirty Harry picture, EPA says that any exposure can kill you. Well, what does it tell its 75-year-old study subjects? It says, during the exposure to concentrated air pollution particles, you may experience some minor degree of airway irritation, cough, shortness of breath, or wheezing. These symptoms may disappear two to four hours after exposure. There's no disclosure of risk of death. And in fact, EPA tells everybody else that you are going to disappear after two to four hours if you inhale PM, right? That's what EPA says. You got to keep this in mind. Any exposure to PM 2.5 kills, and they're, putting, they're pumping diesel exhaust in people's lungs. Outdoors, 10 micrograms. Now you, gotta, you sort of have to remember this with PM 2.5. So how much diesel exhaust are they putting into, or are they making these people breathe? Okay, so you go outside, beautiful date, Cato, you get 10 micrograms uh, in, in air. Well, EPA is putting 600 micrograms of diesel exhaust into, those, into the lungs of the 75-year-olds. This 600 micrograms is, what, 60 times greater than what's in outdoor air, 17 times greater than the maximum PM 2.5 EPA allows in the air, and it's an undefined times greater than what EPA says is safe, right? Because anything divided by zero, and zero is what's safe, is undefined. <clears throat> Why does EPA do this? 
Well, EPA does this because these studies help determine whether the mathematical associations between PM 2.5 and the epidemiology studies are biologically plausible or not, okay? That by itself shows that EPA, you know, doesn't really have any confidence in its epidemiology. That's why it does the human testing to validate, to try to validate what's in the, in fact, so, so what EPA is really trying to do is, in some sense, see if they kill anybody. What's, you know, what else can they be trying to do? Because that's the health effect of most concern, death. So what are, the what are the results of this testing? Has anyone been killed? No. In, in, in the limited litigation that I was engaged in with EPA, um, at issue were you know, almost 300 human subjects. Not a single, no deaths. Uh, EPA says there was one clinically significant event in which a study ex participant experienced no harm or injury. So you know what the clinically significant event is, I don't know. But the important thing is that nobody was killed. So <clears throat> this is the logical box that EPA finds itself in. If 2.5 is as deadly as EPA says it is, then EPA has committed crimes and felonies by its human testing program because it is illegal to poison people for the sake of science, okay? Especially, these are non-therapeutic experiments. They're not trying to cure them of cancer. These are, you know, relatively healthy people that EPA is trying to do bad things to. If that's not true, if they haven't committed these crimes, then PM2.5 is not as dangerous as EPA says, and EPA has lied to everybody else, right? I mean, there's, and there's no escape hatch from this. If you can figure one out, you let me know. But this is, this is a logical box that EPA is in. So let's talk about the reality of PM2.5. Keep in mind, EPA says any exposure can kill within hours. So we know, you know, from average outdoor air, a breather inhales about 10 micrograms per, per hour. Walk down the street, you won't see people dying from PM2.5. If you're in a car with a smoker and the windows are up, you could be exposed to 4,000 micrograms of PM2.5 uh, per hour. And I bet you none of you have ever seen dead bodies come out of a car, <laughs> right, with a smoker. If you're a smoker, okay? Now, okay, so you, your average breather gets 10 micrograms per hour. A smoker <clears throat> gets 40,000 micrograms in five to 10 minutes, okay? PM 2.5. But we're not done yet. It's a good thing we're here at Cato, because I know this is popular, okay? A marijuana joint, unfiltered, you can get 180,000 micrograms of PM2.5 in however long it takes you to smoke a joint, okay? Remember, outdoor air, 10 micrograms per hour. This is 180,000 in minutes, in minutes. No dead bodies, right? We're legalizing pot all over this country. No dead bodies. You go to a hookah bar. And this is from published scientific literature. People actually went out and measured this. I'm not making it up. <clears throat> 100 cigarettes in one session. That's what the exposure is. No bodies outside hookah bars. People wouldn't go there. And now let's look at long-term exposures. <clears throat> the sorts of exposures that are involved in EPA's epidemiology studies. Well, the first question you have to ask, well, if PM 2.5 can kill in hours, how do you know that a long-term death wasn't really a short-term death, right? Because you're constantly breathing PM 2.5. How would you know? 
Okay, but forget about that. So we know that long-term exposures, miners, miners are exposed to very high levels, 2,000 micrograms per hour. Okay, maybe 2,000, eight hours a day, five, six days a week for 20 years. Okay, this is a little quote from CDC, so you can see I'm not making it up. <clears throat> exposures in the mining industry sometimes exceed two, two milligrams, that's 2,000 micrograms. 1,000 times higher than in the typical environmental level. Okay? But miners have a greater life expectancy than, than the average person. Okay? Where, where are the bodies? Let's go back to smoking. <clears throat> in uh, January 2013, this study appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, it was about the benefits of quitting smoking. And this is in the results. He said, life expectancy was shortened by more than 10 years among current smokers. So if you smoke your whole life, you're going to lose about 10 years off your life expectancy. If your life expectancy is 75, you're only going to make it to 65 on average. But they say that adults who had quit by age 35 gained almost all that back. Okay, you get to 10 years back. So what does that mean? Well, so a lifetime non-smoker living in D.C. for 80 years, and that's a 10 micrograms that's at the, uh, outside the Cato Institute, you work that out, it's about 7 million micrograms of PM2.5 inhaled over his lifetime. Now let's compare that to a 15-year, half-pack-a-day smoker in D.C. for 80 years. <clears throat> They'll have the same life expectancy. Uh, they'll, the smoker will inhale the 7 million micrograms plus another 2.19 billion micrograms, okay? So the 15-year DC smoker will inhale 314 times more PM2.5 over the course of a lifetime, but have the same life expectancy, okay? Now, if you need an image for this, well, the non-smoker is going to bring a, breathe about this much 2.5, as in two sugar packets. The smoker, this is the 15-year smoker, is going to breathe this much, four-pound bag of sugar, Okay, four pounds versus two teaspoons. Same life expectancy, 2.5. <clears throat> Washington, D.C. Here we are at the Cato Institute again. 2.5, 10 micrograms, life expectancy, 76.5. Does anybody know what's coming next? No? China. 10 times. This is not a high reading. This is the average in China. 10 times higher on average. Life expectancy, 80 plus compared to 76.5. Now, this air is not gray because of 2.5. There's lots of other things going on in China. Uh, but it still has this much PM, OK? What, you know, what gives? 10 times more PM, three years more life expectancy. I'm going there. How does EPA get away with this? It's, its claims fail every test, epidemiology, toxicology, human experiments, reality, OK? EPA gets away with this because Industry is terrified of fighting. They won't do it. I've tried, okay? They won't do it. They won't confront EPA. Public doesn't care. Activist groups, captured media, parrot EPA. <clears throat> On the congressional side, yeah, I know they do their best, but they don't have much time. It's a complex issue. EPA is, you know, obfuscating, stonewalling, defiant. Of course, and the funny thing is, if you've ever been to an appropriations hearing, you know, a congressman spends most of his time uh, asking EPA for favors. Can you approve this permit? Can I get this money from your state, you know, uh, re your revolving drinking water fund or whatever it is? Hard to conduct oversight when you're begging for favors. The most egregious example, though, of EPA defiance is what I uh, term secret science. A key part of the scientific method is replication of results. 
if you come out with a study <clears throat> and I, you know, don't believe you, um, I should be able to get your data. I should be able to, you know, find out what your methodology was, and I should be able to uh, reproduce your results. It doesn't mean your result. If I reproduce your results, it doesn't mean they're correct, or at least your interpretation is correct. But at least we know your results are real. Okay. Now EPA has two main studies um, that it relies on for its 2.5 work. Uh, it's, they're known as the Harvard Six City Study and the American Cancer Society Study. <clears throat> That's not really important right now. What is important is that although EPA relies on these studies almost exclusively for its epidemiology uh, conclusions, if you ask EPA for the data, it won't produce it. Okay? It it, not only won't it, it refuses to. <clears throat> Taxpayers paid for these studies. EPA will not produce their underlying data for independent replication. Industry started asking for these studies back in 1994. That was 21 years ago. Congress started asking for them in 1997. In 2013, Congress subpoenaed EPA. EPA doesn't care. EPA produced nothing. This Congress has passed the Secret Science Reform Act of 2015. You know, kudos for that. And it's even been... Uh, even gotten out of the Senate EPW committee, which is terrific. Uh, will the Senate vote on it? I don't know. Obama is sure to veto it. But, you know, um, this is really shocking that EPA can get away with this. It get, it's hiding data because it doesn't want people to see what those data really show. It doesn't, it doesn't want an independent scientist to review what's going on. So <clears throat> I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and have for a number of years. And, you know, I could beat my head against the EPA. I know they're never going to produce the data for the Harbor Six City study or the American Cancer Society. I know they're never going to come up with that. They're always going to, because that will expose their fraud. So, you know, I started, well, how can we get around this? Well, you know, it occurred to me, well, we just need to create our own data set. Um, and I started looking around, and I accidentally ran across the state of California, which, you know, it's wonderful liberalism. Uh, has put, has made all its death certificates electronic. All California deaths are in electronic format now. Not, I, I don't think there's another state that does that, or at least has it available for the public. So I got, a, I got uh, all these certificates for a bunch of years, I think 1999 to 2010. I compared state air quality data with deaths, did it on a daily basis. So what I did was look at what was uh, the air, you know, PM 2.5 level today and how many people died? And I did that for four years and I found no correlation between daily PM 2.5 or ozone for that matter and daily death counts. What does that look like? <clears throat> well, this is just, uh, for the sake of clarity, <laughs> a very limited part of that. This is South Coast Air Basin, which is where Los Angeles is and Los Angeles has some of the worst air in America. Um, I had uh, PM 2.5 data for 2007 to 2010, so I did the analysis. These are daily deaths on this side. This is PM along uh, the x-axis. Uh, what you would expect to see if EPA's hypothesis were true that increasing PM killed people, you would expect this line, which goes down in my study, you would expect it to go up. We're going in the opposite direction, and this is in an area that has some of the worst air in America. <clears throat> so, but I know the EPA is not going to listen to Steve Malloy because I only have a master's degree in statistics. 
so I have convinced some uh, world-class statisticians. They, uh, I showed them what I had. They went and they got the data from California for themselves. They got their own air pollution data. They got uh, death certificates and they did a study. Their study covers 94% of the deaths in California for the period 2000, 2012. This is really incredible. Okay? California is like a country. It's the seventh largest economy in the world. Uh, it's got, it, it's a huge population, got huge variability in air quality, some of the worst, some of the best in America. Uh, their study, which is gonna be published this summer, uh, shows no correlation between PM 2.5 or ozone and short-term death. Now, of course, EPA is gonna say, oh, well, we have a thousand studies, you know, was this one, we don't really care about it. Well, and plus, you know, uh, they're, gonna, they're gonna cast aspersions on the scientists doing the work. Of course, you know, our, our answer to that is, well, we're gonna make the raw data available to the public. There's no secret science. So these guys at Harvard or wherever, if, if they doubt the results at EPA, they can get the data for themselves. They'll be able to get our data. Of course, this data is already publicly available. All you have to do is ask California. I got it, okay? I got it. If EPA asked California, they could get it. But of course, they don't want to because that's the answer. No correlation. Okay, so now none of this is rocket science, okay? All this is, I mean, these are verifiable facts. I've, I've given you quotes. I, I have not made up anything. Um, EPA knows that 2.5 doesn't kill. It's more than merely false. They're not wrong. This is fraudulent. I mean, there's no difference between this guy and this agency, okay? There was no there there with Bernie Madoff. There's no there there with EPA and PM 2.5. Now, let's go back to this claim of, you know, EPA's at $2 trillion in economic benefits by 2020, 85%. Okay, so, you know, a, a cynic in there might say, well, so maybe that fit, maybe it's, maybe there's 15%, but I would say if they're lying about this 85%, they're probably lying about 15% too. So I, you know, I doubt everything they say. So EPA has corrupted science, they've denied reality, they have be behaved immorally, if not criminally, they've lied to the public and Congress, they're unaccountable to Congress, you, you can't rein them in via court, it's very difficult, hardly ever been done. EPA's regulations are destroying wealth, and if you destroy wealth, you destroy health. Uh, they're constraining the economy, harming individual liberties. Well, if, I, if it was up to me, I would call it an airstrike and start over, okay? <laughs> but few people are as radical as I am. So what do we have to do? We have to end secret science at EPA. We must end the corrupt peer review process. EPA cannot pay researchers to review their own work anymore. We must get EPA out of scientific research. I mean, the government doesn't really belong in scientific research to start with. Um, we need to mandate, I don't know how we do this, but we need to mandate some independent reality-based cost-benefit analysis. We cannot have, you know, industry cost estimates, which I think, you know, tend to be more realistic and actual versus these imaginary deaths that EPA uses. That's crazy. Major regulations must be approved by Congress. Right now, EPA can ram all this stuff through and there's nothing anybody can do. Congress can't stop them. You can't, you can't stop them in courts. Um, it's green light all the way for EPA. We need to expand judicial review. Uh, right now, the only groups that could get in to fight EPA for the most part are environmental groups. Uh, when we sued them about the human testing, we got thrown out because we didn't, they said we didn't have standing. Um, the judge said, well, the only people that would have standing would be the people in the experiments. Well, of course, they don't know they're being lied to, right? I mean, these are poor college students. There are other poor people in the community. They don't know about PM 2.5 or any of this. They know they're just, they're participating in an EPA experiment getting paid $2,000.
but they might not do it if uh, you know, EPA had to disclose to them that they were risking their lives. I would cut EPA's budget. You know, uh, Lisa, both Lisa Jackson and Gene McCarthy, I think, have said that the vast majority of environmental protection is done in the states. Good. Most of it, let's get it all there. Uh, EPA needs to be remissioned. We also need to update environmental laws for the 21st century. It's not 1970 anymore, Clean Air Act of 1970 or 19, it's, it's just, you know, we know so much more uh, about science and toxicology uh, than we did 40, 45 years ago. All this needs to be revamped. And in closing, um, we talked about PM 2.5 today, but I could talk about ozone to get, uh, also. Um, this is my piece in Breitbart.com yesterday. Um, ozone triggers lying, not asthma. If you check that out, you will find some interesting things about ozone and asthma. So with that, with that thank you. That was uh, very amusing and uh, wonderfully enlightening. Um, I enjoyed it immeasurably, and I hope many of the people uh, in the audience did. So we'll take questions now. And because we are recording this, we would like you to stay who you are and who you are with and ask a question, not give a speech. So having said that, uh, I will say that known speechifiers probably won't be called on. So. Any questions? There's a known speechifier right there. <laughs> the name, Mr. Arthur Randall. Uh, Randy Randall. The question is, EPA. And who are you with? Me. Uh. <laughs> Aide de camp to whoever. That's right. Uh, look, EPA is using the claim that uh, uh, global warming is really the trigger that creates more problems. I think they've, you know, we've got this debate in neutral. But now the issue is, well, because we have global warming, and it, it exacerbates the problems with asthma and PM 2.5. Yeah. So take take it to the next argument. Okay, so <clears throat> EPA's argument is that, you know, global warming is going to cause, you know, more greenery. And because there's more greenery, there's going to be more pollen. And, you know, pollen is going to cause, number one, more asthma. And because they're also small particles, you know, conceivably could cause death. And I think in the report that EPA came out with Monday that I uh, alluded to earlier, where they had the 57,000 number, in addition to the 57,000 that would be killed by worsened air quality by, uh, from uh, power plant emissions, there's also 12,000 that are gonna die, um, you know, either from the uh, heat or cold or, you know, the po extra pollen, I guess. sit down there because I'm going to have to stand and get these guys here. Um, okay, so you're telling us that EPA claims that a greener planet is undesirable. That's right. It's more dangerous. I thought, I, I thought the tropical rainforest was the lungs of the world. Silly me. Uh, anybody else have a question here? Myron. Uh, Myron Ebel, CEI. Uh, Steve, uh, thanks for that. Can you go through the defiance of EPA to Congress? Because it seems to me that they have actually, uh, EPA administrators and assistant administrators, who happen to now be the administrator, have sworn under oath that they will turn over 
the yeah. Harvard Six Cities studies and the American Cancer Society study. <clears throat> yeah, no, as I understand it, uh, Congress has uh, made, you know, several times with Gina McCarthy, if not Lisa Jackson, that they would turn over the data. However, they never do. Uh, you know, if they had turned over the data, well, somebody would be doing analysis and we'd be talking about that analysis, but it's never happened. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's very difficult in the congressional format to press EPA. It's, you know, if you, if, their innumerable members have sent EPA letters asking questions, and they're lucky to get a response. It didn't used to be that way. Um, it, you know, it used to be that. Wasn't it a condition of Gina McCarthy's confirmation that she promised? She right, right. It over? <laughs> yeah, and we, you know, we can see where that's gotten us. I mean, uh, you know, she she uh, promised that she would turn over the data to become EPA administrator, and you know, she made that deal with uh, Vitter and, and uh, Senator Vitter. And nothing has come of it because you can't make EPA do anything in the end. You can't. You can't make EPA do anything. It's just. It's a. It's a rogue agency. Guy in the purple shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Purple's been my favorite color ever since the '60s. It's Marlo Lewis with with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Steve, this is a question about EPA's role in arranging peer friendly peer review. Um, Here's a case that I came across, and I just wonder if you have a, can give similar examples or if you have any thoughts about it. But on the mercury rule, there were basically three epidemiological studies. There was a New Zealand study, there was a Faroe Island study, and there was uh, the Seychelles study. And the one study of the three that had no possible contamination from confounding variables yeah. was the Seychelles study, right. which found no association between, uh, between the mercury ingested in fish uh, by, by mothers of these children and the children's performance at, on various kinds of uh, psychological and cognitive tests. Yeah. Okay. But EPA decided that somehow those, the other two studies really carried more weight. And the reason they did was because there was yet a fourth study by Axelrod, Ax Axelrad et al which was not really a, a new study with new data with a new cohort of kids. It was a meta-study of those three. Yeah. And the Axelrod study decided that, okay, so it turns out that Axelrod and one of the other two of the three researchers were EPA employees, yeah. and the study was funded by EPA. Yeah. So I just wonder if you could comment on that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, look, this is standard EPA practice. You know. You have to understand how the EPA review process works, okay? Like, for example, at KSAC, um, which is the Clean Air Scientific Advisory Council, they have a bunch of different committees, and um, incredibly, although the committees may have a mix of people, sometimes from industry, <coughs> academia, activist groups, uh, wherever, it's interesting how the majority of the, invest of the people on the committees, the majority of the committees are always EPA-funded principal investigators. Always. So EPA always has that connection with them. Um, and the chairman of, the, of each and every committee, subcommittee, whatever, is always an EPA-funded principal investigator. Always. So the whole process is rigged. So, you know, and since it's an honor to be on an EPA committee, you know, if you're an epidemiologist or whatever you are, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's good for your career path to be on an EPA committee. And are you going to really raise a stink? 
because you don't like how, how the rest of your fellow members have decided you know, what, what reality is? I'm sorry. Um, of course not. So you know, EPA has they, they set up the situation where you know, they're essentially the, the, the police, the judge, and the jury. Uh, they decide what's going to be regulated. They decide what the research is. They decide what's, I mean, there's no check on them. Okay. Now, Congress has taken some action. Uh, the House this year passed a bill um, that would, you know, attempts to put a limit on uh, the EPA Science Advisory Board. If you've been an EPA grantee, I think, uh, within the past three years, then you, you can't be on the Science Advisory Board. But that, that bill has only passed the House. I don't think it's even come up in the Senate EPW yet. Um, but that's, you know, we need to remove from EPA this research and review. I mean, that should be basic. Their peer review process is corrupt. All right, let's try you. You are, who are you again? I'm Mark Interactivity Foundation. So I'm wondering if you have any estimates. This will be the last question. Regarding, um, uh, where funding for environmental science, where non-governmental funding for environmental uh, science might be coming from, yeah. what the percentages break down, would it be how big of a problem? Where should it come from? No, no, presently, currently, yeah. um, it, what would be the non-governmental sources? What, what kind of uh, well, there's the, uh, what they have in the yeah. Where should it come from? I don't know. Maybe the Clinton Global Initiative. Uh, maybe Tom Steyer, you know, instead of uh, dumping his money into political races, okay. he could fund. Let me ask you um, just a dumb yeah. way. Is, like, is there a lot of funding, non-governmental funding for environmental science? I, I, I couldn't tell you. I, I think most, most funding for uh, EPA sorts of issues comes from EPA. So I know that in, in the case of particulate matter, um, it's been hundreds of millions of dollars so, going so to universities. So in this particular area, we are really dealing with government science. That's what you're saying? Yeah, science. Okay. Well, thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Steve.